All right, good morning. How is everyone? All right, good to see you guys. Good to see you. I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes if you've got them and pull out your Bible. We are going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Super excited to continue the series with you. And um, we're going to be we're going to be covering quite a bit of ground today, verses 19 all the way down to verse 34. Um, so just kind of by way of welcome, good to see everybody. I want to welcome those online. Thanks for joining with us as we continue our study of God's Word. Um, let's dive into it. The Gospel of John chapter 1. Typically, I read the entire passage, but what we're going to do is for sake of time, because I'm going to need the time, we're going to walk through kind of verse by verse through the passage, uh, explain the meaning, and then give application to our lives. So as I said last week, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John is the prologue, right? It's really the, John's big inter- introduction to the book. And really what he does is he lays out the theme that we're going to look at all throughout the book. And, and I mentioned last week that the first 18 verses uh, could have been an ancient hymn, could have been uh, a song that when the people gathered together, they sang, sang together, could have been a great confession of faith that the believers recited. We, we, we are not super clear. Um, but then when we come to verse 19, uh, there's, um, there's a transition. John, uh, he, he turns his attention to the early days of Jesus and his ministry. And here's what John does. He gives us a blow-by-blow account of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. Actually, his, his life, really before his ministry begins. No other gospel writer is so precise. Here's what John does. He lays out for us the first seven days. So day one, John the Baptist uh, is met with a delegation of priests and Levites from Jerusalem. That's day one. Day two, he declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God. On day three, two of John the Baptist's followers become followers of Jesus. On day four, one of these disciples, which is Andrew, finds his brother Peter, and Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. On day five, Jesus calls Philip, and Philip finds Nathanael. On day six, they leave the area of the Judean desert, and a small band of followers that have recently started following Christ travel from the Judean desert to the region of Galilee. And we know in Capernaum, that was ministry headquarters. So very quickly, they moved to Galilee, northern region of Israel. Capernaum is the launching pad uh, of his ministry, ministry headquarters. It's where he's going to move from and go back to time and time and time again. And then day seven, Jesus attends a wedding in Cana of Galilee. So it's very precise. John gives a very precise account of the first week of Jesus' ministry. And so what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the first two days. We're going to focus on John the Baptist uh, meeting with this delegation and then John the Baptist declaring that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. Now when it comes to John the Baptist, he doesn't get a lot of press in, in, in the New Testament. Um, not much, actually. Three times... Jesus gives his assessment of John. I want to read a few verses for you. Matthew chapter 11, 
verse 11. It says, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. No one is greater than John the Baptist. This is what Jesus tells us. In Luke chapter 7, 26 to 28, it says, Jesus speaking, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Greatest of the prophets, when you go back to the Old Testament, you think about the minor prophets, the major prophets, right? That doesn't mean the minor were like, you know, less important than the major, just length of book, right? So when you talk about like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all and a whole string of, of minor prophets, right? He's greater than the prophets. He's, he's more than a prophet. John chapter five, verse 35. It says, he was burning and shining. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a little while in his light. He illuminated who Jesus was. He was a burning and shining light. Here's kind of the question I want to pose to you this morning. Are you burning for Jesus? Are you a burning, shining light for the gospel? Your oikos, the eight to, eight to 15 people that God has strategically in placed, he's, he's placed these people in your world. Do they know, number one, do they know you're a believer? Do they know that you're a Christ follower? And then have you moved from, you know, yes, I'm a believer to, let me tell you about my story. We just sang it a moment ago, right? This story, it's God's story. A story of, of, of transformation, a story of, of change, a story of redemption. If we went around this room and everyone shared what God saved us from, we would just be blown away. This is what the gospel does. It changes people's lives. So John the Baptist, he's this burning, shining light. Well, he was illuminating. He was putting a spotlight on Jesus. He was showing the world who Jesus was, that he was indeed the Son of God, the Messiah, John the Baptist, his focus was pointing people to Jesus. Here's what the crowd said about him in John chapter 10, 41 to 42. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man, about Jesus, was true. And then it says, and many believed in him there. The crowd said, everything this man said was true. John was, John came, we're going to look at it in a moment ago, he came and he was a voice. He came to pave the way. He came, he was the forerunner, right? He came to, to, to prepare the way of the Lord. John came and he was testifying about one greater than him. Now a little bit of background about John the Baptist. I just quickly, just like, quickly like, glanced over it two weeks ago, but I, I want to kind of dig deep a little bit, right? He had a godly heritage. Did you, did you know that John the Baptist had godly parents? He had a God-fearing father, a God-fearing mother, right? Now listen, parents, let me just, let me tell you some good and bad news. Here's the bad news. Your children are going to do what they want to do. 
That's the bad news. They have a will. They have a choice, right? Every person, there's a volition. God has given us volition, a, 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 a willful choice within us. We can make choices on our own. Now, here's the good news. God is a God of second chances. And the good news is the burden is ultimately not on you. Yes, you are called to reflect God the Father to your children. You're called to model the gospel. You're called to model to your children what God is like. That's great stewardship. That's a sacred stewardship. But the burden, the, the burden of the salvation of your children, it's not on you. God carries that burden on his heart. God loves your children more than you do. As parents, we've got to be faithful. We've got to, be, we got, to, we got to live out the gospel. We've got to model what it means to follow Christ. But the burden ultimately is not on us. Let me tell you, I, I, I've seen godly parents, and I've seen just prodigal children just walk away from the Lord. Is that on mom and dad? No. Could mom and dad made better decisions? Yes. Anybody in that category with me? Better decisions, right? Sometimes you look back and you're like, man, that was like a bonehead decision. Like, why did I do that? Or why didn't I do that? Right? Hindsight's 2020. But he had godly parents. His mother was Elizabeth, who was the cousin of Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus. His father was Zacharias. So it's interesting, real quick. Zacharias was a priest, so very spiritual parents. Um, it's interesting that the Gospel of John is written by John the Apostle. When you do detective work, you realize that surely, most likely, most likely, I mean, my firm conviction is John is a cousin, a first cousin of Jesus. So under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John is giving us this account about the life and ministry of Jesus. And now John is unfolding more of Jesus's family tree, and he's telling us about John the Baptist, who's also a cousin of Jesus. Now, before John was, was born, his mom was, um, well, the Bible says she was advanced in age, so she was older, okay? And she was past the point of having children. They didn't have any children, and uh, Zechariah, he was serving the Lord. He was um, honoring God. He was a priest. He was working in the temple, and it says that an angel appeared to him, and um, and, and basically the message was, you're going to have a child. And what was Zachariah's reaction? Did he, does anybody remember? He firmly believed, didn't he? No, he did not believe. I mean, an angel appears to him. Now, before you get all chesty, before you go, well, I would have believed. No, you wouldn't have, right? I mean, just like if we were in the Old Testament, we looked at the life of Moses, we would have been grumbling and complaining about current situation. You know, we had it better in Egypt and we had better food in Egypt. Hogwash. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Right? Sometimes we want to we think, oh, we would do better. We would have greater faith. No, we wouldn't. Zacharias, he did not believe. And so what did God do? God basically struck him mute, right? He was mute during the entire pregnancy while Elizabeth was, God was forming this baby in her womb. Which by the way, when Mary does go visit Elizabeth, uh, it says that Elizabeth, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb for joy. 
at the announcement that Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit of God and she was going to give birth to Jesus, the Savior of the world. The, the word there, child, um, baby, for John the Baptist is the same Greek word for Jesus when he was a toddler. So it, just kind of a, kind of a throw-in note there. Um, it's interesting. God sees the baby in the womb and a toddler the, the same way. So just saying, just saying, right? Just, that's, how the, that's how the Bible sees it. Now, if you don't see it that way, you're not with the Bible. That's all I'm saying. I'm just going to say it like that. Just boom, right? So here's the deal. He struck and he can't speak. I mean, nine months. Now all the ladies are like, that's right. During the entire pregnancy, he can't say a word to me, you know? I mean, she could boss him around. She could, she could say anything she wants, but he can't say anything. All right, well, I'll just move on. So here's the deal. It's really easy for us to kind of point fingers and say, Zacharias, come on, man, you should have been with it better. But remember what I said last week? Between Malachi and Matthew, Old Testament, New Testament, last book, first book, gospel, 400 years of what? Silence. 400 years. God was mute. God was mute. God was silent. It was complete silence. Complete darkness. There was no angels giving any sort of, you know, messianic messages or prophecies. There was no prophet. There was no scripture. Just complete silence. But the silence was interrupted when the angel appeared to Zacharias. And he tells Zacharias and Elizabeth, you will have a baby boy. And you will name him John. Now, in Jewish culture, fathers named their children. It's interesting that God took upon the privilege and the responsibility to name their boy. He named him. He said his name will be John. I think that speaks, you know, Jewish culture, names were like everything. I mean, your name was your identity. It was connected to the family. It was connected to the, to the inheritance. It was connected to the status, your family and the community. Your name had meaning behind it. You know, today people just give names. It's just really weird. Like, they're naming their kids after, like, fruit and stuff. Like, apple, peach, you know. It's just kind of odd, right? But when it comes to the Bible, names have a deeper meaning. So 400 years of silence. God breaks through. You're going to have a baby. And, 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 and we know that John the Baptist was a Nazarite from his birth, which means that Nazarites took a vow. And it was a short period of time marked by piety and devotion. You wouldn't cut your hair. You could not cut your hair. You couldn't drink alcohol. And uh, you couldn't touch anything dead. So can you imagine John the Baptist? Man, this guy must have a, he must have long hair, a big old beard. I mean, the original hippie. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I picture in my head. He lived in the desert. You know, he wore camel's hair. And uh, some people think, well, that, isn't that what everybody wore? No, like, no, people had like nice threads and fashion. Like, like you know, we, we sometimes think they were so... People back then were so archaic and barbaric and just, they didn't have any sort of like technology to do anything. No, they, they had nice threads. Here's a guy who just, his diet was kind of crazy. He dressed kind of crazy and I think he looked kind of crazy. And he lived out in the desert by the Dead Sea. Now one story that 
was interesting about John the Baptist. He was a, he was a very outspoken, just courageous prophet. On one occasion, he walked into the court of the king, Herod Antipas, and uh, the story tells us that he denounces the king because the king, Herod Antipas, was shackled up to his brother's wife, um, but he wasn't married to her. So John the Baptist calls it out, right? And we we know that uh, the story of um, the ladies, the actually Herod Antipas, like, I mean, I guess he was like sleeping with his sister-in-law, just kind of odd, right? Herodias, and, and she was furious about John the Baptist being so outspoken about their relationship. And uh, we know the story. Her daughter uh, dances before the king, which is kind of weird because that's like your niece dancing before you. And Herodias, you know, um, the king says, you know, you can have anything you want. He was so pleased by watching the dance of his, of his niece. Uh, Herodias steps in and tells her daughter asked for the head of John the Baptist. And the daughter said, what I really want is the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was surprised. He couldn't, you know, um, retract his promise. John was eventually um, executed. He was beheaded. I think John was, was a courageous prophet. He was a courageous man. He was willing to call sin, sin. He wasn't willing to back away Right? He wasn't willing to compromise and just give in to the culture. Here's my challenge to you. If you're a follower of Christ, stand on the word of God. Stand on the word of God. Stand, don't stand on your opinions. Don't stand on your preferences. Stand on what the Bible says. Right? Stand on what God has clearly revealed in his word. As believers, I think there is this, there's a tendency, I think it's human nature. I think it's human nature that we want to be accepted, just as human beings. We, we want to be accepted. We, we don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be, you know, on the fringe. We don't want to be looked at as weird, right? But, but I think if we're not courageous, if we're not standing on our convictions, if we're not, you know, lined up with the Word of God, we, we need to be in step with God. We need to be aligned with what God wants us to believe in and what he wants us to hold to. But I think we're so, we don't want to be out of step with culture. I would say, you know what? Be out of step with culture and be in step with God, right? Allow God to just guide and direct your life. So as believers, let's be courageous. Let's, let's speak the truth, but let's speak the truth lovingly, right? And this is where Jesus was the greatest model. He perfectly balanced truth and grace. He was 100% loving. I mean, he, he, he threw people into the sphere of his love. I mean, he embraced the outcasts. He, he, he loved the, those who were caught in adultery. He, he ministered to the tax collectors. He loved the, the outcasts and the marginalized. The people that the culture just kind of put a mark on, put a label on. That's who he was. But on the other hand, he was so truthful. But here's the reality. Jesus had more beef. He had more issues with the religious leaders than he did with sinners. He was compassionate and, and kind and, and, um, and he pursued people. 
with his love and with his grace. And as Christians, I think we got to learn from Jesus. We got to, yes, we got to hold the truth, but we got to be gracious and loving and forgiving. People should see Jesus in us, right? It's okay to disagree. I mean, in our culture, you know, tolerance, you basically have to agree on everything that they, they agree on. But when it comes to the gospel, we, we have to say, listen, we can agree to disagree, but I'm, I'm still going to love you, right? I'm still going to be friends with you. I'm still going to share Jesus with you, right? Because, because I care for you. You know, um, so we know the story, right? Herod Antipas executed uh, John the Baptist. Um, Mark chapter 6, verse 14, later, after John the Baptist uh, had been done for a while. Jesus was becoming very popular. His fame was spreading all throughout the country. It says, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. What's amazing is people got him mixed up with Jesus. Right? You, you can live in such a way that you should live in such a way where people see Jesus in you. Herod basically was saying, Jesus is such a remarkable man. We must, he, he, he must be John the Baptist, come back from the dead. Think about that. That's the impression that John had on the king who executed him. Now let's go back to John chapter 1. John is preaching in the Judean, Judean desert, and um, then there's a delegation. Some people come from Jerusalem. John is baptizing and he's preaching and people are coming to him. Some historians, scholars think hundreds, maybe even thousands of people were going out to John the Baptist and he was baptizing them in the Judean, uh, in, in the Jordan River. Now it says that they came from Jerusalem, leaders of Ju- Judaism and the temple and um, Basically, they want to know what he's teaching. You know, what, what, why, are, why are people following him? And so they sent a delegation to check him out. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at John chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. It says, and this is the tes- testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Huge crowds are following him. And some, some of the leaders probably were thinking, man, is he going to cause like an insurrection? We know that um, the Jewish people were under the, the tyranny and, and reign of, of the Roman Empire. So people are sent, a delegation is sent, but really behind the delegation, you're going to see later in the text, it was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a strict sect of Judaism. They were the hyper-legalists of their day. There was about 6,000 of them. And it was all external. It was, they didn't have a genuine heart for God. The people thought they were the closest to God. But externally, they were far away from God. They were legalists. Um, And so days before, days before in uh, a, a different gospel, it says that John the Baptist called them snakes. He called them brood of vipers. And basically, he's calling out their hypocrisy. Look at verse 20. It says, and so, th- so they say, who are you? In verse 19, they want to know, who are you? In verse 20, it says, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. The, the, the word Christ in English is the Greek word Christos. 
It's Messiah. It means the anointed one. They're saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the Messiah? The people have been longing and waiting for the Messiah. They've been living under Roman occupation every day. They're anticipating the Messiah, the deliverer to come. And it wasn't wishful thinking because the promises in the Old Testament said that the Messiah would come. But they had a wrongful thinking about the Messiah. The Messiah would come and he would be this this political giant. He would come and he would set up his kingdom and he would just wipe out the, 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 the Roman Empire. Some people thought he would be a military general, a military man. Um, so they're curious, who are you? John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. Look at verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Now, it might seem strange to us that they're saying, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Elijah lived centuries, centuries before. To the, to, the, to the Jewish people, they, they believed, right, the last book of the Old Testament, that Elijah would come before the Messiah and he would be a forerunner. Now, if you remember late in Jesus' ministry, he's with his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, really the, the gates of Hades. And uh, Jesus is gathered with some of his disciples and they say, who, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they said, well, some think that you're Elijah. To the Jews, they thought, listen, the Messiah is coming. But if you're not the Messiah, then surely you've got to be Elijah because Elijah is the precursor. The li- Elijah, he's the forewarner. He's the one who's going to be setting up the, this, the, the Messiah to come. And so the delegation from Jerusalem is saying, to John the Baptist, are you Elijah? And John says, no. John said, in a, in a figure, Jesus said in a figurative sense, John the Baptist had the spirit of Elijah. So partially it's fulfilled, the prophecy in Malachi. It is fulfilled partially in John the Baptist. Jesus said that Elijah was, was still to come. We know if you kind of piece together different you know, apocalyptic literature, especially the book of Revelations, I think it's a reference. The ultimate fulfillment will be the second coming of Christ, and we know there's going to be two witnesses. One's going to represent the law. One's going to represent the prophets. Well, that's got to be Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets. John fulfilled it partially. It was a dualistic prophecy. Malachi, yes, he was speaking of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist was coming. He was going to be a forerunner. He was going to set up the Messiah. He wasn't, it wasn't literally Elijah. But we know that Elijah plays a part at the end of the age. We, we won't dig into that. That's, that's a whole separate message, all right? And so they asked him, well, are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? You know, like I said, maybe, um, maybe a reference to uh, what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, verse Verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So they're like, are you Elijah? Well, are you the prophet? Ever since Moses said that the people were looking for that prophet. 
But that prophet in Deuteronomy 18 is speaking of Jesus. So here's what they're saying. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. And they've got to be frustrated. Look at verse 22 and 23 of John 1. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So they're saying, who are you? Really what they're saying is, who do you think you are? That's really what they're saying. Who do you think you are? Coming out here, baptizing people, right? And, 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 and pointing to uh, someone who's greater than yourself. You know, he's calling the, the, the spiritual elite, the, in the eyes of the people, spiritual giants, these like self-righteous, externally-minded, hypocritical religious leaders, he's attacking them, calling them snakes, brood of vipers, right? He's calling them a bunch of hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. Basically, what he's saying is, oh, you shine, you look pretty on the outside. You're polished, you're looking great in the sun. But inside, you're like dead men's bones. You're rotting, you're, you're, you're decaying. I mean, he just, John the Baptist threw the gauntlet down. What did John the Baptist say? I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then he quotes the prophet Isaiah. Now Isaiah lived 700 years before John the Baptist. And he quotes Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. I want you to look at it with me. Isaiah 40 verse 3. It says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way the Lord makes straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know, in the custom of, there was a custom in those days when the king would travel, um, they would make the roads smooth. Uh, we know that they didn't have asphalt back in the day, so they had ruts, and so they would have to fill in the ruts, and, and you know, so it wouldn't be a bumpy ride, so they would smooth everything out. And the king always had a herald, um, a servant, someone who would carry a trumpet. And, and the, the herald would go before the king, just like John the Baptist. He would go before the king, and he would play the trumpet. And the people in the marketplace, they would stop what they were doing, selling, buying, doing business. And they would pay attention. And the herald would, 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 uh, would play the trumpet, and the herald would say, make way for the king. Or they would say, the king is coming. That's John the Baptist. This is what... Jesus' cousin, John, who wrote the gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying about another cousin to Jesus that Jesus is the Messiah. John the Baptist is the forerunner. He's the messenger. He's smoothing the road. He's, he's, I'm looking for the word. He's banging the trumpet, right? I mean, he's, I mean, he's blowing that trumpet. You can tell I'm, I'm musical, right? I, I, I'm musical. I mean, he's just letting it out, man. John's like, I'm that guy. I'm the one preparing the way. He's the voice crying in the wilderness. As believers, you may say, you may say to yourself, I don't have much. Oh, you have a lot. You have a lot. You can be used by God. You know, 
Um, I love what Bertha Smith said. She said, get usable and God will wear you out. It's true. Just make yourself available. Make yourself available. Say, God, like Isaiah, here am I, send me. You, God can use you. You have a voice. You have influence. God has put people in your life for you to share the good news of Christ with. John the Baptist came as a voice and, and he was crying in the wilderness. John the Baptist wasn't saying, look at my life. You know, a lot of Christians, they just, they don't want to go verbal. They don't want to proclaim. They don't want to say anything verbal about Jesus. They just want to live their life. And, you know, by their example, maybe people will see Jesus in you. I'm not against lifestyle evangelism. I think you should live your life out where people, they see a difference in your life. They see Jesus. But here's the deal. The Mormons who worship a different Jesus, have a different gospel and a different God, they live pretty good moral lives too. So if you're just banking on lifestyle, you know, I'm just gonna shine the light just by the life that I live, it's not enough. It's not enough. You have to go verbal. John the Baptist went verbal. He said, I'm a voice crying in the wilderness. Let's pick up the story in verse 24 to 28. It says, now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal, I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. John said, I baptize with water. It's, water was a, a symbol of, uh, of baptism, a symbol of repentance. And repentance means to turn in a new direction. Here's what John was doing. He, he was preparing the people's hearts. He was preparing their hearts. He was the forerunner. He was the messenger. He was getting people right. He was a, a heart of repentance, right? Changing direction, changing um, um, habits, just changing, changing the, the, the way they're living, preparing their, their hearts for the Messiah. And we know that water symbolizes that new life. Notice what John said. But among you, notice what he said. But among you stands one you do not know. I wonder if Jesus was in the crowd that day. I just wonder. John said, I am not worthy to untie his sandals. In that culture, in the, in the Jewish culture, especially if you were more high status, affluent, had the extra cash, you would have a servant. You would have many servants. But there was one particular servant that would be the servant of the house, but he would, he would be kind of like the doorkeeper. So when you would bring people over to your home, um, you have to remember, there wasn't asphalt roads, so people's feet were very dirty, you know, stinky, just gnarly. And that servant would take off your sandals, and basically that servant was the lowest household servant, was, a, was really a slave, and he was the servant of the house. And he would take off the, your sandals and he would wash your feet, all the dirt and all the grime. And, and, and that's what he would do. That was his role. He was the lowest of the slaves, lowest of the servants. 
And he would do that kind of foot washing. Makes me think of Jesus the night before he was crucified. The night before Peter denied him. The night before all the disciples pretty much abandoned him except John and Peter. John and Peter followed him into the inner part of Jerusalem and outside the little patio courthouse of Caiaphas the high priest. It was before Jesus was arrested and beaten and bruised all night. In the upper room, before he took the Passover meal and he, and he basically transformed it. He transformed it to be about him, that he was the Passover, that he was the perfect spotless lamb of God. What did Jesus do? When they came into the upper room, he demonstrated greatness by washing their feet. Jesus was saying, in effect, to his disciples, he had been with them for three and a half years. On the way to Jerusalem, he had told them at least three specific times, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be uh, arrested and beaten and crucified. He was giving them a, a window into what was going to happen to him. Jesus stooped down and he took a, a wash basin and a cloth and he became the lowest servant of the household and he washed their feet. John the Baptist is saying, I am lower than the lowest servant slave in the house. John the Baptist had right understanding, the right perspective of who he was. He was a humble man. He had strong convictions. I think John the Baptist was bold. He was courageous. But yet he knew who he was in light of God's grace. He said, I am not worthy to take the sandal off, the, to, un, to untie his sandals. Here's point number one. We're gonna fly through some of these points. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Messiah. Now that's the point of the passage. The entire passage, John the Baptist basically says, I'm just a voice, right? He's saying, I'm not the Messiah. But I want, you to, I want you to check this out. He declares why Jesus came. Look at verse um, 29 to 31. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God. Literally, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Here's what he's saying. Even though Jesus was born after John the Baptist, he was always, he was always before John the Baptist. Because the Gospel of John chapter 1 is laying the foundation that Jesus is God. If you go back to verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We, we talked over the last few weeks, we've been talking about Jesus shining before creation and Jesus being divine, Jesus taking upon full deity, Jesus being the son of God. He was fully God and fully man. Now John is driving home more of this theological truth that Jesus indeed is the son of God. 
Here's point number two. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the sacrifice for sin. That's why he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God. The Jewish people, see, I don't think the Western mind completely, we completely don't fully understand what this moment must have been like for the Jewish people. Because Jewish culture, it was like, you're the people of God, you have the covenants, you have the promises, and you have the sacrificial system. And you have, the priest is continually making sacrifices over and over and over and over again for your sin. One day a year, day of atonement, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make atonement for the sins of the nation and for himself. To the Jewish people, for them to stand there and for them to hear John the Baptist declare, that man is the Lamb of God. Every Jew knew exactly what he meant. John was declaring not only his identity, he was declaring his mission that Jesus came to give his life, to pour out his blood for the sins of the world. This is what Isaiah chapter 53, verses four to six says. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. John is saying Jesus is the Messiah who came to be the Lamb of God, to bear our sin. He did not come to rule and reign politically. He did not come to be this military giant. He came to be our spiritual deliverance. He came to be our savior. John goes on and he says in verse 32 and 33, it says, and John bore witness. You just see it just from verses 19 to 34. He testified, he bore witness, right? He said, I, and John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remained, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. The gospel writer John omits this from the story. The other gospels tell us about Jesus's baptism. Probably one or two days before this, this, this moment, this passage, Jesus comes to the Jordan River and John the Baptist baptizes him. Jesus was baptized. It says that the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove. Let me correct any crazy theology you have right now. If you believe that the Holy Spirit is a dove, you are wrong. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. The Holy Spirit is not a force. The Holy Spirit is not energy. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. The, the, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person because the Holy Spirit speaks. In Acts 13, set apart for me Saul and Barnabas. Okay, so the Holy Spirit descended like, that's key, like a dove upon him. And the voice of God, 
the father, spoke audibly, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, the other gospel writers tell us. And the crowd that day, they had to have been fully aware of what had happened. John tells us that God had told him, we don't know how, right, that the Holy Spirit will descend, and when the Holy Spirit descends, that is the one. That is the Messiah. Now, now John the Baptist knew Jesus because they were cousins. But he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah until this moment. Look at verse 34. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He openly declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Here's point three. John the Baptist testified that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, liberal scholars will say, well, Jesus, you know, he was just a good man. He was just a good man. You know, good teachings, great man. Or humanitarian. He did a lot of great things. He healed people. He he fed people. But, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. Here's the problem with that. John, John's gospel, chapter 1, lays it out for us perfectly. John the Baptist is the first witness in the gospel to clearly declare and testify that Christ indeed is the Son of God. I don't have time because I got I to land the plane. But let me just say this real quick. John 20, 30 to 31 is the purpose statement. We've looked at that time and time and time again. Why is John writing his gospel? So that people might believe. John, his purpose, he's going to drive this purpose all throughout the book. Basically, he's doing it right here with John the Baptist. You know? Are you the Messiah? Right? No. But there is one greater than me. Right? John's like, I'm just a voice. And the purpose of the book is that Jesus is the Son of God. And and, and John the Baptist tells us in verse 34 that Jesus indeed is the Son of God. And then he gives us a piece of the purpose. In the purpose passage in John 20, it says... Well, let me just read real quick. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you believe, if you trust Christ, you will have life, spiritual life. John is tapping into that very truth when he's saying, John the Baptist told the crowds and his own disciples, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus as the spiritual connection between you and God. You cannot know the God who created the universe, who created you in his image, unless you know his son, Jesus. Jesus is the go-between He's the mediator. He's the middleman. He's the advocate. Jesus came to to bridge the gap and to represent us to God. And how did he do that? How did he represent us? Hey, church, how did he represent us? How did he do it? How did he do it? He shed his blood. He spilled his blood. He spilled his blood for us. All your sin that you've ever committed all the darkness, all the wicked stuff you've ever done, maybe the sin that no one knows about, 
in your past and it's tucked away and it's hidden and, and it's not visible and no one, no one knows. You've never mentioned it. It's a secret. Let me tell you, the Lamb of God shed his blood for all of that for you so that you might be forgiven, so that you might have the spiritual connection with God, this new life, the abundant life that only Christ can give. Is Jesus just a good man in your eyes? Or is he your lamb? The lamb who shed its blood for, for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray.